WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. Here with City Pulse managing editor Andy Belaskovitz. Later in the show we will uh, explore the topic of how well the Freedom of Information Act in Michigan is working. I will also talk to Joan Nelson of the Allen Neighborhood Center about uh, a proposal she and others made to the Lansing School Board to save Eastern High School that she says is getting short shrift, and uh, to Jake Kaplan of the ACLU of Michigan about what's next in the legal battle over same-sex marriage. And on the topic of same-sex sex marriage, let's bring in uh, our friend and colleague Kyle Malin of Mirrors the Capital Newsletter. Kyle. How are you? Yes, great. How are you, Burl? <laughs> Good. So the governor, Governor Snyder, has, I understand, taken a position now that the state will not recognize the, the about uh, 300 same-sex marriages that occurred on Saturday. Am I getting that correct? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of a confusing position. He says that uh, the, the marriages that were performed on Saturday, about 300 of them, uh, were legally performed, but the state can't do anything as far as recognizing them because of the stay that was issued by the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals. Now, obviously, the folks who would like to see gay marriage um, uh, in Michigan as a as a as a stay and, and something that we can uh, live with would like to see the attorney general and the governor just pull their appeal. Nobody says they have to appeal anything; they could just let uh, Judge Friedman's decision stand as it is. Uh, but uh, that uh, decision to uh, appeal has already been made. A stay has been issued, and um, uh, folks who have had their uh, vows uh, exchanged on Saturday will have to wait for some time in the future for a court to uh, say that their marriage uh, is uh, legal and they're entitled to benefits. Yeah, well, or at least Michigan benefits. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, well, what are the political ramifications now of this issue, this being a, a gubernatorial election year? Well, you know what? It's interesting, uh, Burl, because I think what you're seeing here from both Snyder and Bill Schuette is a step away from the traditional Republican position of just being hard and fast on uh, saying marriages between one man and one woman. That line isn't obviously working for them this year because they have not used that at all. In fact, Bill Schuette, yesterday when quizzed by reporters, say that he's just doing what the voters uh, put into the Constitution in 2004. He was elected to defend the Constitution. That's all he's doing. If the voters want to come back and change that, uh, they're more than uh, able to do that. He will defend what they say. But as of right now, he's just taking the position that he's being a steward of the Constitution. Now, Rick Snyder, on the other hand, also is trying to step back away from uh, the traditional position by saying, well, we think that these marriages are legal. There's nothing we can do about it uh, because of this here nasty stay by the Federal Court of Appeals. Uh, I find it really interesting, Bro. You know, only, only three years ago, Rick Snyder said he was for one man, one woman marriage. 
Uh, and now, right now, obviously, he's kind of dialing back on that. So how likely, uh, how important, rather, do you think this issue uh, is going to be in November, given the likelihood that uh, all that's going to eventually happen is Michigan will be in line for possible hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it could be an issue. Uh, I think Mark Schauer will have... Uh, the ability to say that he's for gay marriage, which I know that he's already said before. And uh, Snyder's got to be a little wishy-washy on it because he doesn't want to disenfranchise the independent voters out there who you know are going to play a major role in this election. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to tick off his Republican base. They're already not very pleased with him for a number of issues, and uh, I don't think he wants to add to that list. So uh, he's trying to stay as far away from this issue as he can, and then uh, only address it when absolutely necessary. Um, so I guess it all depends how much of an issue Shower wants to make it and how many people out there uh, see this as, as a make-or-break issue for them when they pull the lever for governor. Yeah, well, Shower has certainly given every indication he does want to make something out of it, so uh, we'll see if uh, it sounds like it would behoove Shower to keep bringing it, bringing it up. Uh, I'm going to turn things over to Andy who wants to talk to you about that nerd fund development. Sure. Yeah, Kyle, t- tell us about these allegations that came forward yesterday f- uh, from the from the Democratic Party. Uh, it looks like um, th- there are some allegations that uh, uh, one one of the uh, uh, the guys Ro- Baird, who was uh, who was paid through this nerd fund and, and is now on the state salary, was uh, helping uh, get a favorable contract uh, with one of uh, the governor's cousins. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's. Basically, what's going on here, uh, George Snyder is Governor Snyder's cousin, and he runs DBI, which is a furniture company here in Lansing. And they've been providing refurbished furniture to the state of Michigan since 1999. Um, They had a contract with the state. It was most recently renewed in 2008. Well, what happened was, is uh, back in 2011, when Snyder took office, the Senate um, was successfully lobbied uh, by another firm called Kentwood, which basically shared this contract with BBI. And they successfully lobbied the Senate to uh, rewrite the, uh, the state budget uh, in a way in which it gave Kentwood basically um, a sole source contract, from what I understand. And the, um, the Snyder administration wasn't very um, enthused with this position because they kind of liked having DBI and Kentwood uh, going head-to-head because they felt like it gave their departments uh, uh, a better chance of getting a better deal, you know, when you have some competition in the matter. Mm-hmm. Well, um, obviously, when the Senate language passed, George Snyder, Snyder's uh, cousin, didn't like this at all, that the Senate was doing this. So he reached out to Rich Baird, who is the governor's uh, transformation manager. Uh, at the time, he was not paid through his state salary. He was paid for through this uh, mysterious nerd fund. And what the, what the Democrats are saying here is, uh, you know, who is paying Rich Baird's salary? What was he doing in the governor's office? And, you know, was he you know, lobbying for DBI? Was he lobbying for George Snyder? Uh, who's, whose allegiances um, was he um, bidding for? I mean, he wasn't receiving a state salary, so who was paying his salary? And so they're just raising these questions up again. They want to the U.S. District Attorney to take a look at it and see if there's any wrongdoing, if there's any cronyism here. 
Obviously, the Democrats are afraid that that's what happened. However, uh, John Nixon, the former budget director, told me that uh, he was looking into this matter long before Rich Baird brought it to his attention, and he didn't like the, what the Senate had done, had successfully changed the language and got the contract back to the way that it was, and really thinks that the entire batch of allegations are ridiculous. So, uh, like like the same-sex marriage issue, Kyle, do you think uh, there's something here for the Dems uh, to latch on to, politically? Uh, they can try. You know, there just isn't a lot of... There isn't a smoking gun here which shows that anybody in the Snyder administration asked, uh, asked John Nixon to do something he wouldn't normally have done as a favor for the governor's cousin. You know, there's no communication uh, along those lines. You know, it's all kind of insinuation and innuendo on how you want to paint the picture. So I think until they've got, uh, you know, really what they're doing is they're trying to drum up the nerd fund, you know, because uh, they want to know who contributed to this nerd fund. They know that Snyder isn't going to release those names, and so they continue to hammer on it because uh, they can say the governor's being secretive, that he created this mysterious post in the state government, um, and the position was paid for by who, you know? And I think they think that's a winning issue, and they're going to continue to hammer on this nerd fund for the duration of the campaign, that's for sure. All right. Well, Kyle, thanks so much, and uh, we'll let you go and get back to work. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brown. Thanks, Andy. Uh, All right. That was Kyle Malin uh, from Mirrors the Capital News Service. You're listening to Impact Exposure. And with us now from uh, the ACLU of Michigan is Jay Kaplan to talk about the legal side. What uh, the what's next in the legal battle over same-sex marriage? Uh, Jay, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. So, uh, tell us what uh, what happens next. Okay. Well, I imagine your your first thing you want to start with is the governor's statement just about an hour ago, indicating that. Uh, the state believes that the marriages that were granted over the weekend are legal, but the state's not going to court any recognition in terms of benefits uh, for that marriage. And if it leaves you scratching your head, it's understandable, because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to understand how you can deny legally married couples the benefits, the state benefits of marriage that all other legally married couples are entitled to under state law. Well, what did they do in Utah? What did the state do there? The state, it's a, the state initially told the, uh, the county clerks that they had to issue marriage licenses. And this was before a stay was granted. And for several weeks, same-sex couples got married. And after a stay was granted by the United States Supreme Court, the governor then said that those marriages would not be legally recognized. And that's being challenged by the ACLU in Utah. Um, and uh, we are looking into uh, the possibility of a legal challenge regarding what the, what the governor said. Um, I have to say, the fact that he said that these marriages are legal, we believe this could open the door for federal recognition of these marriages. But, um, you know, as a matter of law and fundamental fairness, the state is obligated to extend all the rights and responsibilities that flow from a legal marriage. And doing anything less, it's in violation of our Constitution, and it, shamefully, it treats uh, gay and lesbian couples like second-class citizens. And it also adds to the confusion and uncertainty that these couples and their families have had to endure uh, just over the past week. 
so we, you know, we welcome to hear from couples who are legally married this weekend who are requesting benefits. By the way, you know, how does the governor define what a benefit is? Is that just health insurance or a pension? Does it include the right to adopt? Does it include the, you know, in terms of inheriting uh, without a will? Um, but we're very concerned and very, very disappointed in terms of the, the, the end result of what the state announced. So should we anticipate then that the ACLU of Michigan will file a suit? Uh, well, I think, you know, we're exploring it. it. It's hard to say, you know, affirmatively that we're going to do something in, while we're in the process of looking into it. But um, let's just say that we're very much concerned about what happened. We don't think it's right. We don't think it's fair. And we don't think it's legal. Uh, you said the uh, the governor's statement opened the door to federal recognition. Why why wouldn't the fact that a federal judge had said yes and there was no stay until almost twenty four hours later, and the people who got married in that period, why, why why wouldn't the federal government say, you know, they're legally married? Well, the Department of Justice they, they, they have been requested to do this, and of course, as a matter of law, they will review this. And I think the governor's statement that these marriages are legal. I think it it, it, it it adds only further support okay. of why the Department of Justice would recognize that we would, would would recognize these marriages for purposes of federal benefits like social security and um, and other things. So one one legal track here uh, will be over uh, maybe over the state's recognition. Correct. Uh, what about the appeals process? What's the timetable on that? And where is the, where is it going to leave us if the appeals court says yes? Um, well, the, the appeals court has already set out the briefing schedule in the case, and um, I believe the state has to file their brief by May the 7th. The, uh, the plaintiff, the DeBoer team, files their brief by June the 9th, and the state uh, then uh, submits a reply brief. They have to submit it by June the 26th. So I believe the plaintiffs have requested an expedited uh, hearing schedule on this matter, and, you know, the, at the earliest, probably this case could be heard in, sometime in the summer. Um, it might be a little bit later. Uh, and then this Court of Appeals has two decisions to make. Do they uphold this decision or do they overturn it? Um, if they uphold the decision, well, obviously these marriages uh, that uh, were granted and the right of same-sex couples to get married in Michigan you know, has been upheld. If they overturn the decision, um, I think it's still, you know, in, in terms of until you, it, this goes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, uh, there might be another stay with, you know, with regards to you know, granting further marriages. Um, I'm not saying that right. Uh, is there likely, it's likely to end up being appealed uh, to the Supreme Court anyway? I, I think so. And I think it's very likely, I think it would be very likely that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals will uphold this decision. First and, and of all, what, yeah, what experience do we have with them on this issue? Well, on, mar- on the marriage issue, yeah. no. They, ha- they haven't addressed this, but now they have, uh, they have a case from every state in the Sixth Circuit. They have a Tennessee decision, a Kentucky decision, an Ohio decision. All of those are more narrow than Michigan's decision about marriage equality in general. So, you know, no doubt they're going to be rendering a decision on this. And the thing that's important to keep in mind is that um, courts of appeals, they don't review findings of fact. They review conclusions of law. 
And Judge Friedman made some very strong findings of fact with regards to the state's expert witnesses, that they were not believable, that they were not credible, that they had biases, that they, they represented fringed elements, that their methodology was flawed. And I think it would be very difficult for a court of appeals to be able to overturn a strong decision, a strongly worded and reasoned decision such as Judge Friedman. All right. Well, we're we're just about out of time. But Jay, if you were a betting man, do you think the Supreme Court is going to end up uh, taking this up in the next uh, the next session? I would presume they're not going to take it up this time. I think things are moving very very quickly, a lot faster than anybody thought. And I think by the time of the next session, 2014 to 2015, we will have several Circuit Court of Appeals decisions with regards to marriage equality. And there's a very good chance that the court could take a marriage equality case and a decision could be rendered by as early as June of 2015. Michigan's case is particularly attractive because you had a full-fledged hearing, trial, findings of fact, and unlike some other states like in Virginia or uh, Kentucky where the attorney general has chosen not to defend the law or the policy, we have an attorney general in our state who you know, is going to fight this to the bitter end, and that might make it a more attractive case that the, that the court would, be, would want to address. Very good. Jake Kaplan of the ACLU of Michigan, thanks so much, uh, as ever, for being on City Pulse. Thanks so much, Pearl. Take care. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89FM. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz here with Andy Belaskovitz. Next up in this week's paper, uh, Larry Cosentino did a story uh, about Eastern High School, as you may know. And it appears likely that Eastern High School uh, will be decommissioned as a school. And that, uh, we don't know when, but uh, with this, the shrinking student population in Lansing, it appears unnecessary to have three full high schools. Uh, uh, Larry uh, talked to a number of uh, people who are trying to save Eastern High School as a specialty school. One of those people is uh, Joan Nelson, the executive director of uh, the Allen Neighborhood Center, and Andy caught up with her earlier today and did this interview. Let's uh, listen to that right now. So, Joan, you were part of a task force um, that essentially looked at uh, what can be done with Eastern High School, this big crumbling oh, actually, building. Actually, nope. no, no, it was much broader than that. Okay. Uh, the facilities task force was assembled uh, by uh, the school board and administration uh, probably five months ago, uh, and... It, to look at all facilities in the district. It wasn't simply to focus on Eastern or Sexton. It was really to uh, pick up where the Hollister Committee a few years earlier left off. Uh, Hollister's committee focused on uh, uh, academics and had lots and lots of recommendations that were incorporated. Former Mayor uh, Yep, Hollister. former Mayor Hollister, mm-hmm. uh, that were subsequently uh, adopted many of them by uh, the board at that time. Um, he had, uh, his committee also had recommendations regarding uh, behavior 
and those recommendations, many of them were as, uh, adopted as well. And then there were lots of recommendations regarding facilities, and that piece was set aside uh, for the moment. And uh, it was time, you know, a couple of years down the road, to uh, once again address the issue of uh, facilities and property of the school district. So our, our focus was very broad, and we were looking at uh, empty lots, and we were looking at uh, buildings that had been closed, and we were looking at Ebersol. I mean, actually, there was, there was nothing that was off-limits. It was a broad mm -hmm. facilities uh, focus. And this, in the backdrop of this is a shrinking student population, correct? Well, shrinking for several years, but in fact, what we understand is that enrollment has leveled off in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. So I think that it's flattened. And, uh, you know, our efforts and the efforts of obviously a whole lot of people in the district, uh, not least the superintendent and her team, has been to uh, position uh, the district for a resurgence. Mm hmm so um what 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 is it the task force set out to do exactly i mean make recommendations to the district about how these buildings could be repurposed or? right make recommendations about which properties need to be sold uh which buildings needed to be liquidated uh and which buildings uh both current occupied buildings and and others that were not uh could be repurposed mm -hmm. And so in, in that context, in that very broad uh, look at facilities, um, we had a pretty extensive conversation, uh, of course, about uh, both Sexton High School and Eastern High School. Those have been on many people's minds, you know, over the last year or so. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, we, we spent a fair chunk of time on those. We also spent... Uh, during the several months that the facilities task force was meeting, we spent uh, several months actually touring schools, high schools for the most part, in mid-Michigan. So we, uh, certainly we visited Sexton and Eastern. We also uh, checked out some suburban schools uh, nearby. Um, we also went to Jackson and looked at the Jackson High School, which was uh, is a high school that was built around the time that Eastern was built, and a few years ago, the community of Jackson uh, was faced with a decision about whether to build brand new or to, um, you know, go in and completely retrofit and renovate this old building. And there was, uh, that Board of Education did some uh, surveying in the community, and there was uh, substantially more support for repurposing and re retrofitting the old facility. Um, it had lots of really wonderful architectural features and tons of history. Um, people felt very connected to that school. And so they uh, made the choice to uh, retro retrofit. And so we visited the school, and it was fascinating, and it was also eye-opening. I mean, this old school is beautiful. You know, it looks mm -hmm. like a school. Um, and But what they've done is uh, wire it for 21st century learning and uh, did some systems improvements as well, the utilities and whatnot, to, uh, to really equip it, you know, to be as, as functional uh, as any brand new high school. So, um, so we looked at a lot, and uh, 
ultimately, um, we made a whole series of recommendations. Um, we there were there were several properties actually that were on our list of those that we thought that the district might want to sell, um, and uh, and about uh, and we also recommended that an addition be put on Pattengill, the newest building in the district, uh, to uh, prepare it to serve as a conventional high school. And we thought that a conventionally sized 9 through 12 high school on the northeast side of the district would nicely balance Everett on the southeast. And then we recommended that at both Sexton and Eastern that the district forge deep programmatic and financial partnerships with uh, institutions that would be interested in assisting the district in ensuring career and college readiness. What we essentially recommended was that there be specialty academies scaled down, you know, very, very quite small uh, specialty academies uh, in Eastern and in Sexton. And our recommendation was that the specialty academy at Eastern High School uh, focus on health careers and insurance. And that and the partners that we identified as uh, a good fit and folks who might want to invest in a specialty academy would be Sparrow Health System, uh, MSU, uh, with its health careers uh, divisions, and LCC, which also has a very robust health careers program. We thought that Sexton would be appropriately partnered, uh, would, would have a, a focus, a STEM focus, a STEM and IT focus, and could appropriately be partnered with some of the tech firms um, that have been popping up over the last several years in Lansing. Um, so that was our that was our recommendation. And and how has that been received? It, when was that turned in, and how has it been received from the district uh, administration? It was in I think the first week in January that we uh, had our did our formal presentation to the uh, to the board to the Lansing School Board, and. Uh, and we made that recommendation, um, the, the complete recommendation. It, it included uh, Pattengill as a conventional high school, Fairview and Forest View as K-8 offerings uh, for uh, parents, um, and uh, specialty academies, again, small, scaled-down specialty academies at both Sexton and Eastern, um, believing that... Those the recommendations for the specialty academies really built on the strengths of the district. I mean, the district has uh, has operated magnet schools and schools with a, a specific focus um, for a decade and done very well. Um, and you know, we thought that it would it also um, it would also be well received, given the fact that so many people. Uh, in Lansing, and particularly on the east side and the west side, have such strong feelings of identity and loyalty um, toward the two high schools, the two older high schools. In any case, we made our recommendation. It was very clearly understood mm -hmm. by board members. They seemed to really uh, like what we were saying. Mm -hmm. um, the journal had a had a reporter sitting in the audience, and she captured all of that and. 
uh, included that in a uh, long article the next day that talked about uh, the two specialty schools and our vision of those two schools drawing from the region um, and, uh, and Pat and Gill and as well as all of the other facility mm-hmm. recommendations. And, uh, and then a few days after that, the editorial board of LSJ um, did a, a favorable uh, editorial Mm-hmm. on the set of recommendations. Mm-hmm. And now, and, and City Pulse has done, Larry Cosentino has done a couple stories this month focusing just in on Eastern, um, where the, it appears the district, uh, their position right now is that there's no plan on the table uh, whatsoever. Do you feel like um, the task force's recommendations have been rebuffed up till now? Um, I think, I think that we'll find out in the next little while. A strategic plan um, regarding the facilities is being prepared by the superintendent, and I think we'll learn more um, in the near future. The the report that uh, went before the board, the school board, uh, a week or so ago, um, listed Eastern as uh, kind of status quo, that there were no immediate plans to close or... Uh, you know, repurpose or, you know, anything else. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what decisions have been made, frankly. You know, I don't think that the board has made any final decisions. I think that they're waiting to see the plan that the superintendent presents. Mm -hmm. And as are all of the rest of us. You know, we're waiting to see um, whether the recommendations of the facilities task force are uh, are a part of that plan. Mm -hmm. We really don't know yet. Right. And uh, an, an overarching issue here with a building the size of Eastern is how it would get paid for. You know, the, exactly. the, the district just can't pay for this uh, out of pocket. So what's the task force's idea? of? Well, that was why we recommended deep partnerships be uh, forged with, uh, with uh, corporations and with other institutions that have, have a, a stake in career readiness. Um, and again, our, our recommendation was that the superintendent negotiate with MSU and LCC and Sparrow, for instance, to find out um, whether there might be uh, support for upgrading uh, at least some portion of that school to serve as a specialty academy. You know, the the same would be done on the on the west side sure. um, with tech companies that may again have the same investment in the school district producing, uh, you know, youngsters who are really ready to jump into a tech career. We know that both health careers jobs and uh, tech jobs go uh, go wanting. You know, for lack of you know people to fill them in this community every day. So there there really does, you know. We, I think we all have a stake in ensuring that Lansing uh, School District graduates are uh, really prepared to move into those fields. Do you see a potential uh, bond issue for uh, the public buying into some of this? To oh, yeah, for yeah. and I think, that, I think there'll be a bond. I think, I think the funding is going to have to come from a variety of sources. It will have to come from investments you know, uh, by, uh, by partners as well as, as uh, perhaps through a bond. And uh, the east side has uh, supported the last two bonds and uh, is generally uh, very supportive of the district. There's a lot of uh, 
interest in Pattongill as a conventional high school, and there is, as you know, uh, a strong interest in Eastern, some version of an, an Eastern high school being uh, maintained in the historic Eastern High School. Sure, sure. Perhaps the first floor. Right, right. Well, uh, Joan, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks for being on City Pulse. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. That's uh, Andy Belaskovitz's interview with Joe Nelson of East of uh, the Allen Neighborhood Center on the fate of Eastern High School. You're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz uh, here with Andy Belaskovitz, and uh, our final segment today is uh, our uh, the audio from our TV show City Pulse Newsmakers, which is uh, on at 9 a.m. Sundays on my 18. And uh, in the most recent show, we had uh, three guests on the subject of how well is uh, the state's Freedom of Information Act functioning. Uh, Joining us were uh, uh, Lisa McGraw, who's the public affairs manager of the Michigan Press Association, Kelly Barks-Hoffman, who used to have a a well-known byline around the state covering state government for the Associated Press. She's now in public relations, but she is the treasurer of uh, the Michigan Coalition for Open Government. And Chris Swope, uh, the uh, city clerk of Lansing, uh, joining me in that interview was uh, Mickey Hurton, associate publisher of, uh, of City Pulse and also the president of the Michigan Press Association. So uh, let's listen right now to that interview. Good morning. This is Sunshine Week across the nation. And while we have been having some sunny weather in uh, Lansing, uh, we're referring to uh, the week when we call attention to what's going on with uh, public meetings and uh, and public records in local and state governments. And with us to talk about uh, that topic today are uh, Lisa McGraw, who is the Public Affairs Manager of the Michigan Press Association. Chris Swope, who's the city clerk uh, for Lansing, and Kathy Barks-Hoffman, who is an officer of the Michigan Coalition for Open Government. And uh, with me, uh, as usual, is our associate publisher, Mickey Hurton, and I will mention he is also president of the Michigan uh, Press Association. And uh, let's uh, just start going around the table. Uh, uh, there has been uh, some movement, I understand, on an important piece of legislation uh, in uh, state government. Uh, uh, Lisa, tell us about that. What would it do? Um, House Bill 4001 would um, make costs and fees for FOIA a little more consistent than they have been. FOIA being the Freedom, Freedom of, of Information, Information Act. Act. Um, and also, um, it, it addresses some problems with delays in filling requests and um, would chop some of the fees off for the days that the request is late and being filled because the state law requires that requests be filled in a timely fashion. And it passed handily in the House. Uh, do you see clear sailing in the Senate? Um, I never want to jinx something like that <laughs> by saying that, but I think um, the Senate 
it should go pretty smoothly. And so, what problems? What problems will it solve? What are some problems that we've seen that this will solve? Uh, the biggest problems we've seen over the years with uh, the Freedom of Information Act are uh, high costs, sometimes excessively high costs, and uh, delays in filling requests. And we're hoping that the changes to this. The act in these in this bill will um, remedy some of that. Lisa, I think this, it's something really important to get on the table <clears throat> right away. We're sitting here, press people, but FOIA really well, isn't. Wait. We've got Chris. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've allowed him to be here, but it's just a reminder that FOIA really isn't about the press. It's about people's requests, and I mean, you see that. You know that most of the requests Citizens. that governments, you know, receive don't come from news organizations. They come from people or business groups. And we sort of, we're, we're there carrying the mantle often, but it's really not all about us by any means. And I just think people sometimes forget that this is about their right and their ability to get information and their ability to go to meetings. So I just want to get that context on there because if it's a press issue, people might think differently about it. Mickey, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, especially when you talk about the Open Meetings Act, really it's the people's ability to participate sure. in their government that, that, is, that is tantamount to, to the way we live. Um, and, you know, there were some changes made to the Open Meetings Act in the last year that, uh, that make sure that uh, notices are, are a little bit more accessible to people, that require some additional web postings, and, and I see those as positive moves that have been made recently as well. Mm -hmm. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, Lisa, that, but yeah, that's, that's a very but good I, I point. think just Absolutely. Well, a lot of what the problem has been is that it's very inconsistent. You might have one local government that charges you a dollar a page for copying fees, um, but there's other governments that charge much more than that, or that say, well, the, the first page is $10, and after that it drops down to a dollar. But, you know, instead of saying, okay, I want these documents, the first one's $10, every single separate document you get is starting the clock again. And it really, it makes it impossible, you know, not only for journalists to get records, but it makes it impossible for your average citizen to be able to get copies of records. Um, you know, in some places you can walk in and you can just say, can I have the documents? And you can make copies right there. And, you know, then that's not as high a fee. But governments increasingly, in part because you know, they've had a lot of cuts as well. Um, they are trying to use this as at least not a money loser, and some unfortunately are trying to make money off of it, which the law specifically forbids. And so, you know, they're charging too much for the person who's, you know, looking up the records. Um, in one case, we had a school district that was, you know, charging at the rate for the superintendent. Well, I'm sorry, but I would hope the superintendent had better things to do than copy records for a FOIA request. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing we're seeing, and, you know, we, I think journalists and people in, in the public, they sympathize with the fact that it is an expense to a certain degree for local governments and for state government and school boards to have to fill these FOIA requests. On the other hand, this is what the law is, and this is what you need to make democracy work. Uh, Kathy, uh, you're in public relations now. You were a, a journalist with Associated Press uh, for many years covering state government. T tell me about what the culture is like within state government when it comes to open meetings and open records. Uh, are they receptive uh, generally to giving reporters what they want? You know, I think it's changed over the years, and I think it varies a little bit by department. Um, I think that, you know, it used to be if you had a pretty good relationship with the public information officer over there, you just called and said, hey, I'm looking for this, can, you know, you think you can pull it together for me? And they would get it for you. 
Now every department is like, no, you have to go through the FOIA officer at least most of the time, you know, which it's not a terrible thing to have to fill out a request and send it, but then you're on the clock and they've got at least five days and everybody seems to take at least the five days and then they can extend it for another five days. And it just seems like, you know, it, it's made it so much more formal that it almost has made it more adversarial too, you know. I mean, you're not trying to get at something, you're just you're just trying to get the records that you should be able to get. And yet it seems like once you get the formal process involved, then I don't know, it seems to kind of make it a lot harder sometimes. But the to process get is demented, I mean, in some ways for the citizen. I mean this is you go, you ask for the documents you, you want, you have a legitimate need, you tell me no. Then you appeal to the same person who told you no, and they tell you exactly the same thing, except you've wasted time. Then they say to you, if you still want these documents, hire a lawyer and go to court. And so now, you, so what kind of system is that? It's completely stacked against the requester if the public body doesn't want to give up the information or feels it's embarrassing or proprietary or who knows. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz here with Andy Belaskovitz. Let's get back to our interview uh, on the Freedom of Information Act in Michigan with Kathy Barks Hoffman from Mich- the Michigan Coalition for Open Government, uh, Lisa McGraw, Public Affairs Manager in the Michigan Press Association, Lansing City Clerk Chris Swope, and uh, Mickey Hurton, Associate Publisher of uh, City Pulse and President of the Michigan Press Association. And if I may, there was another bill that was introduced around the same time as the Shirky 4001 by uh, Representative McMillan of Rochester who wanted to form a commission that people could go to to appeal as opposed to having to go either A, back to the person who said no in the first place or take it to court, pay the court costs, pay the lawyer fees. And we think that the Open Government Commission bill is a good bill because it'll be very citizen-friendly, save citizens some money, and and kind of eliminate some of the... Well, it doesn't drop all of the cost immediately on the citizen. Correct. And the other part is, even if you do win, and the law says the courts can, you know, help you recover your fees, rarely do you recover the full cost of your fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're always out for what should be, even if you've been adjudicated... You know, and you win mm-hmm. the case, you still don't really get your money back. Chris, you might want you might have a different <laughs> view on this. Uh, you, you know, <clears throat> honestly, when I when I became clerk, there was an outstanding FOIA lawsuit against my office uh, <laughs> by a local uh, political consultant who had asked for some records. And y- you know, I remember within the first few weeks, the the attorneys were like, "What do you want to do with this?" I'm like, "Just settle it." I mean, there was I, I couldn't understand why the previous clerk had not provided the information. Um, you know, and I and I think most governments are like that. I, you know, I, I I think that we want to provide information to the public. That's what we're all about. Most clerks that I talk to, uh, they're not trying to hide things. Uh, they're trying to avoid costs to their community. Sure. Uh, so you know, it it is a tough balance because I've got I've got staff. We've got other things to do. We've got elections to run. All these other things that are pulling us in different directions, and a FOIA request might. Uh, 
<coughs> give you five days, but somebody walking in the front door wanting something, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of like they're there and they're pulling you away from what might be sure. a tight deadline that you're on. And, and that may be a little bit of, of what Kathy was talking about was the fact that, you know, everybody's stretched a little bit tighter these days. And it might, uh, there, there might be an aspect of it that, that they just really <laughs> want to get you out of their face right <laughs> now so that they can have a couple days to, to, to find or to, uh, to research that. Uh, Chris, uh, you'd think in these days of computers that it would be easy to get information, but on a pr uh, how is it actually? Is it easy or hard to get information? Um, it depends. I think uh, we're going in the direction of it being easier. I, I can speak for the city of Lansing. We have um, we have hundreds and hundreds of of contracts that have not been uh, computerized at all. They're paper files. So you you want something that's more than a couple years old. Um, we're looking in the paper files, and sometimes you might be asking for something not in the way that we think of it. Uh, for example, you're asking for a stadium lease. Well, who is that contract with? It's not with a specific entity that you're thinking of. It's maybe with the legal name of the corporation. So, um, And with old paper files, there isn't that big cross-reference. We are, and a lot of other governments have already are farther along. Um, some are, have not done any, but electronic record-keeping, and that does make it easier. So you know, eventually it'll be easier, but there's a big transition and a big cost to that transition. You know, it's, it, it, it seems to me uh, in an ideal world, the way it should work is I want, I want something, I'll, I'll go sit down with the, the clerk or an assistant and tell that person, here's what I'm trying to get, help me shape this request. But but the way it seems to work is it becomes uh, I think requesters uh, think it's an adversarial well, process. It's, it's so episodic with FOIA. Mm -hmm. It's I'm here, you're there, then back to you. It's like volleying in tennis. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's back and forth. Wouldn't and it you're save right. a lot of time if we just sat down and said, "What are you after?" and let me help you get it. Well, I always did that when I was working, you know, editor at the Lansing State Journal. My advice was always call them first. Yes. You know, because sometimes you can get it and at least they know what you're looking for. But there is a tendency, certainly my reporters there, to just, oh, I sent a FOIA. And I think the process encourages that. And I, your point's well taken. Um, that when you talk about what's the stadium lease, well, if you actually talked about that, right, you would right. then say, well, you want to go right. to Lepfa, or but, you have to right. go somewhere and, else. And, and, but you, a lot of times they don't call us. They I know. Don't, all I we know. get is a piece of paper that says, you know, this is what I want. We got a FOIA request, um, actually, that was requesting a document from Lansing, Illinois, a few <laughs> weeks ago, and it was from an out-of-state requester. So we bounced it back. It's like, we don't have any records for Lansing, Illinois, and they really <laughs> meant Lansing, Michigan, but we had no idea of knowing <laughs> that. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Once again, obstructing the people's right yeah. to know. Yeah. We, we often urge our members and even citizens, because we get a lot of citizen calls in our office, too, to narrow it down as much as possible and be as specific, specific as possible so they can get what they want and ease the burden to you and you know, make it better for everybody. But you're right, the adversarial attitude does seem to kind of exist. Now mm -hmm. You're listening to Impact Exposure. 
This is City Pulse here on the Impact. Uh, let's uh, listen to the rest of uh, City Pulse Newsmakers' show on the Freedom of Information Act in Michigan. Right. No, I had one of those yeah. cards too, Mickey. But I, part of the problem, though, and there are two other uh, bills that are being have been introduced by Democratic lawmakers that would make FOIA apply more broadly to state government. Because right now mm -hmm. the courts are entirely exempt um, at every level, and there's also, um, you know, a, most of the legislature is, you know, there's very little information that you can FOIA with the legislature. And so, and, and, and the, the executive office, right, and, the, and the executive office is completely exempt as well mm -hmm. as far as the governor's office. So unlike a state like Florida, where you can figure out the governor's schedule and you can get, you know, a lot of information that way, there's nothing that you can even FOIA with our governor's office. And so these laws would make this a little bit more open so that you have a chance at least of going in and asking for a record without just being slapped with, well, no, that's not covered by the Freedom of Information Act. You have no right to that information. And we hear of other states that seem to uh, have more progressive open meetings and open records law, uh, Florida being one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, what 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 are the biggest things that we're missing in Michigan that uh, would help Michigan be more progressive? Um, the university thing comes up quite often. And also, as Kathy said, the different branches of government at the state level. Um, well, campaign finance now. You know, we've raised the limits on what people can get. So you can see some of that money, but there's so much money, like in court races and things, that people that have, you know, these certain groups that are supposed to be just issue ad uh, kind of groups, they don't have to disclose who any of their donors are. I mean, we consistently, the state gets a D or an F <laughs> in national ratings yep. on how far, you know, how open we have for campaign finance disclosure. And that's really a problem because you don't know then if, you know, there's a court case going on who's contributed to help certain justices get reelected or certain courts, you know, judges get reelected. There's no openness about that at all. And, you know, if people don't recuse themselves or don't say, oh, no, I've had some relationship with this person, you have no way of knowing that. One of the things that I became aware of at City Pulse is you can't find out in Michigan who is behind a uh, limited liability company, which uh, is part of the reason <laughs> people form LLCs. But, uh, you know, you don't know, for example, if someone uh, owns a business and uh, that same person uh, may be giving huge contributions to a politician and may be getting benefits from it because uh, in Michigan it's l literally uh, the state uh, cannot release who, uh, who owns limited liability or who are the members as they're called. Uh, and I, I, it made me wonder when I discovered that. I wonder, you know, there must be a lot of these things, uh, these problems that we're, uh, we're not aware of until we trip over them. You were thinking maybe you should have formed one? Yeah, oh, I have one. <laughs> I have one. But I, I, I'm proud to say I'm the sole, uh, the sole member of my LLC. There, well, there's several thing. things the state licenses for, does licensing for uh, that aren't open. Um, just recently they... Our, I think it's in the Senate right now, there's a bill to exempt gun registrations. Yeah, that's the irony, is this year they, this week they passed, you know, the FOIA, mm -hmm. FOIA things, but last week the House passed a bill that would completely take off, you could not find anything out about gun registrations. And of course years and years so. ago they did, they exempted CCW permits. Too. Right, so, so you don't know that's Really you just have no knowledge if your neighbor's packing anymore at all. Well, it hasn't passed the Senate yet, but yeah, it is a, it is an issue. And I mean, you, I, you know, the proponents make the argument that. 
people shouldn't be able to find out what you know what guns you have but on the other hand there are a great many people you know battered wives you mm -hmm. know people that have been stalked, stalked who would like yes. to know so you know and you know plus we even have the issue of people that go in and do these mass shootings well you can't find out anything if this kind of legislation passes about what kind of guns they had and mm -hmm. things like this and this is certainly an issue of public interest I would think. And in general it would seem uh, that anything the state licenses should be subject to public scrutiny because the state can abuse that. Right, it does go both ways. You know, part of the public scrutiny is to keep the state from abusing its power. See, and I don't understand do this law because it, if the whole point of the gun owners is gun, having guns makes me safer, well then, if I know I'm packing, if I got guns at home and that's publicized, I should be less likely to have a burglary or have someone fooling with me because they know I've got the gun. It seems that would help make me safer, uh, based on their thinking. Another issue that we've that it was a Gannett newspaper that screwed that up for everybody, though. <laughs> Mickey is a former Gannett hand <laughs> <laughs> from your neck of the woods too, wasn't it? The, news, the yeah. newspaper that mm -hmm. published the, the map of yeah, well, where I used to work in Westchester. Yeah, are yeah. you going to talk about the um, Citizens Committee b commission, the the commission that? Uh, McMillan is the proposing. Open yeah. Because I think this really, this will change, could change the way people react and, and deal with problems getting information. I mean, these others are sort of, you know, right. issues, but this would this would make a difference. Well, and we talked about a little, uh, currently, you know, you have to appeal to the governmental entity that said no in the first place, which is like, as someone said to me the other day, asking mom again for the same thing. And, um, after that, you go to court, and that costs citizens and uh, both ways, the people filing the FOIA and the local governmental mm -hmm. entity to fight it, quite a bit of money to go to court, hire a lawyer, you know, and it's also a big time delay, which is of concern in a lot of cases, because sometimes people, often, when they want the information, they need it, and for a reason that's timely. So... Uh, Representative McMillan is proposing that we form an open government commission, which is based on a fairly new law in the state of Iowa, and that commission would be charged with hearing these cases as opposed to going to court um, and making determinations. People could still go to court if they wanted to after, um, but the decisions could be considered binding. and. Um, the commission would be made up of legislative appointees and appointees from various open government entities and local governments, possibly. There's an amendment being talked about for that. Um, but we feel it would be a good remedy to solve some of those problems. I'm curious on that. I, I haven't seen the legislation. If there's one body statewide, uh, that could be a geographic uh, issue for, for people in different parts of the state, and that all could also create a logjam, it seems to well, me. Well, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, it would probably be based in Lansing, but um, that's a good point. But hearings could also be about. done by telephone. I was looking at Oregon, for example, when they have workman's comp issues or unemployment <coughs> issues, they run their hearings by telephone. Mm. And it seems to work. I mean, they have, it's, um, it's a process. It's certainly worth a try. There may be modifications of this, but it does... It, it can work well for both sides. It is binding, and unless you take it to court, so you know, you've got some risk. But 
it's it's better than the system we have now. Certainly, I think for the people. Oh, the system we have now is quite a burden. Yeah, uh, Chris. Uh, if uh, we reach the point where literally all your records are scanned in, can computerized, what about just putting it all online and saying there, to the public There's potential do for it? that. The, the system we actually are using, I, I think, has some of that potential that we could say this type of document is available. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it certainly would make our life easier to just mm -hmm. sort of make it make it out there um, and available, but. You know, so again, more, more money for computerization might be part of there we go. part there of we the go. solution. It is. It is. Uh, what about uh, limits on that, though? Are there documents you're dealing with that you feel should not be, not necessarily be public? Uh, you know, we'd have to do a review. You know, if there's an employment contract, we need to make sure that it doesn't have personal information about the individual, and things like that. Um, but really any finalized contract uh, is a public document. But remember, the FOIA document, there are 25 exemptions, and they're broad exemptions. Honestly, if I printed it out, it would be taller than me. It would be six feet. You could hold it up this way. It's sections A through Y. We're almost out of alphabet on the number of exceptions to FOIA. Now, some mm -hmm. of them are reasonable. Lease you know, bidding information and other things, safeguards, but many of them are just been, you know, plopped in there by special interests and, um, and, and agreed to by the legislature, and that you do have to be careful mm -hmm. of that. It right. is a may, though. I mean, it, they, you don't have to withhold this information. The law says you may withhold it, and many government entities use that as I will, rather than making, mm -hmm. you know, judgments about it. We've talked mostly about uh, uh, documents, but what about meetings? What, how, are, how is Michigan when it comes to open meetings? I, I feel like we're pretty good, and, yeah, but, I, good but I, um, going back to what Kathy said a, a few minutes ago, I was recently at an, at an open meeting of a local board, and they were getting some advice from their attorney, but it wasn't on a specific lawsuit, and one of the, one of the members wanted to go in closed session for that, which isn't permissible because they were it wasn't an opinion about a, a pending litigation. And, you know, the person moved it and <coughs> the chair tried to stop them, but then they voted for it and, and then, you know, they ended up stopping, you know, they actually had the vote. There was a reporter in the room who left and several other people and then they were like, they kind of realized that they were not going down the right track and they backed off of it and didn't actually do anything or have any discussion in closed session. But it clearly, um, the reporters should know what mm -hmm. is and isn't a, a valid reason and, and board members mm -hmm. should know what is and isn't a valid reason to go into closed session. And I, I think sometimes that gets missed. We need more training on we that. See, as yeah, state. we and see. When we actually, Representative McMillan just did a House Oversight meeting on the Open Meetings Act, just kind of a broad look. And, and I was talking to our attorney for the association, and a lot of the things that we're seeing are from lack of knowledge. It's not an intentional violation. They're not being malicious. They just don't know. But, it, but is, is sometimes a, a lawyer used as a ploy uh, to uh, 
uh, keep a meeting from being open? So because anything you tell your lawyer is confidential. That's it. well to a point. Yeah. I think that happens, and I think Chris's mm -hmm. example is a good one. You know, you you want to jump to that, like we're going to talk to our attorney. But there are provisions in the law for when you can use that excuse, and they're very specific. So. It, you can't just say, I need to talk to my attorney, and we're going to shut this down, and yeah. all of us are going to chit-chat while you go out and haul. We have less than two <laughs> minutes to go. Chris, do, does your uh, clerks, uh, State Clerks Association uh, educate clerks on open meetings and open records? Uh, we, we certainly do. In fact, I've been to two trainings in the last month uh, on open meetings and freedom of information, you know, discussing the new changes. Uh, we, we do a lot of training among the clerks, uh, so, you know, I'm confident that most clerks, at least clerks that are involved with our state organization, are, are pretty up to speed. Um, but there are a lot that are not members of our association. There are a lot of other public boards. Um, there are, you know, the City of Lansing has uh, 25 or 30 public boards that are covered under the Open Meetings Act. Um, and, you know, I actually have a new deputy, and one of the things that I'm going to be working on is a training for them to make sure that all of them understand their role. In, in uh, Kathy, uh, if people want to find out more about the Michigan Coalition for Open Government, how can they do that? Well, we have a website, uh, miopengov.org. Uh, you can go there. Um, we're very happy to have you join. It's just $25. Um, and uh, then, you know, that gives us the ability. We, we have been involved in these discussions on FOIA laws. Uh, we've been dealing with the state court administrator's office when they've been trying to talk about closing down drug court files or juvenile records that we think should be more open. Um, so we are having an active role, and like I said, in Sunshine Week, we're, uh, we're hoping that more people will want to join us. All right. I want to thank Kathy Barks-Hoffman, City Clerk Chris Swope, and uh, Lisa McGraw from the Michigan Press Association, and Mickey uh, Hurton from City Pulse. I want to mention that uh, uh, the City Pulse has kicked off its uh, annual Top of the Town uh, contest. If you want to participate, you can vote at LansingCityPulse.com. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. show for today. I want to thank all our guests, Jay Kaplan from the ACLU of Michigan and uh, Kyle Malin from Mears the Kaplan Newsletter, Joan Nelson from the uh, Allen uh, Neighborhood Center, and uh, as we just heard, Kelly Barks Hoffman, Lisa McGraw, and Chris Swope. Uh, and Andy, good to see you. We'll be back next Thanks, week. Girl. And I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for listening. Good night. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.